Right, hello. Uh, welcome to this um, knockout episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting as always, my name's Dan and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening. And Khan. Good evening. Are you, are you well, gents? Have you been enjoying all of the football all the time? Yeah, I have. It's been great. It's uh, quite quite strange to not have any uh, <laughs> tonight, but it gives us a chance to do this, I suppose. So, yeah, it's been been a good, fun couple of weeks. It, it's been a quite fun tournament, I think, apart from when Sweden and England have been playing. Um, it, there's been some not great games. Um, the the, the Germany-Portugal game was one of the all-time great Euro matches, I thought. And, and you know what? The, the France-Portugal and the whole scenario of... Who's finishing third? Who's finishing bottom? Will third get through? Was actually quite entertaining in the the, the group of death. That, as well. that was great last night. I, I watched. I was yeah. in a sports bar last night, which had both games on, so I was watching them both simultaneously, and they were both for different reasons, uh, just fascinating watches. And um, the number of times the positions changed in that group last night, uh, I think Holland, uh, Holland, Hungary. Uh, Portugal and Germany, all at different points last night, filled second, third, and fourth spot. Um, that you know, France spent most of the night as the as the presumptive group winners, but those other three places were switching just all night long. It was it yeah. was really really interesting viewing. Well, they said on the commentary, I think Portugal is the one team that occupied all four <laughs> at some point during right. the night. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think that's probably like my would be my favourite night of the tournament so far, just because they were two both really good games on at the same time, um, in the same evening. And I think actually it's a, you know, it lived up to you know the, the group of deaths don't always live up to their billing, but actually I think this one did. It was actually they were all really exciting games for one reason or another in that in that group. Um, they were, and I, I, we might be preempting what we're going to talk about, but I think we did say on this podcast, Hungary probably won't go through, but they're not cannon fodder and I think you know they can be really really proud of the way they played in the tournament because they they lost to okay they lost 3-0 to Portugal but three goals in the last five minutes that flattered Portugal yeah it did flatter Portugal and then drew with France and drew with Germany and really give it a go in both games and in that Portugal game Dan don't forget they scored to go 1-0 up and had it Drilled out for offside just before Portugal scored. So yeah, they they, they were definitely one of the teams who've who've played their part in a in a tough group. Yeah, really really enjoyed the, the, the tournament so far, and um and 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 athletic article we've just been talking about. Not like us to talk about the athletic on this podcast. I know um, we've just been talking about the article where they were talking about bums. And Hungary were not bums at all. It wasn't that kind of bum they were referring to anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought Hungary um, really, really did perform very well. And I, I did say that if they win one game, they might sneak through, and, and th- that would have been the case. But there we go. Um, so it's England against Germany on Tuesday at Wembley. I kind of thought that England might conveniently draw the game with the Czechs, just a, a soulless nil-nil in order to get them to the the second place. But looking at the way the draws panned out, if England get past Germany, and that is a colossal if, uh, of course, the, the draws kind of opened up for England as a possibility of an England-Wales semi-final. I think Wales will have to, to beat Holland to do that, which is going to be a tough ass. It's going to be a tough ass for them to beat Denmark. Yeah. When, we, when we're looking at this from an England point of view, 
because um, I'm sure Khan doesn't really want to talk about the Turkey campaign. Um, <laughs> if, if, what campaign? <laughs> well, quite. Um, <laughs> how, how do we feel that this tournament's gone for England? Because it's not been pretty at all. Didn't concede any goals. Um, three clean sheets, just the two goals, both scored by Sterling, seven points. In, in years gone by, we'd be kind of rubbing our hands with glee at this, but... It feels a bit underwhelming, but I, I think Gareth Southgate is probably happy. He would probably have preferred to have not got Germany next, or France, or Portugal, but that's just the way that the draw went. I think Gareth Southgate will be delighted, Dan, because I really don't think he cares about England being that entertaining. Um, <laughs> good, because he's done a good job of it. Well, in, well, quite, but I think he has talked a lot in his press conferences about the French approach in the last sort of 12 months. And the French approach is basically that the way they set up is Deschamps has them very, very solid. They defend with six players and then they've got four very, very talented players at the top end of the pitch. And they essentially say to those four, you go and win is the game. And I think when you've watched England in the last three games, what's been very evident is that we are defending with six players most of the time. It's unusual in modern football, I think, for a team that plays with two holding midfield players in the way that England are at the moment, to not push the fullbacks on. Most of the time, the reason you play with two holding players is so that you can get your fullbacks high and wide. Um, and England are playing with what I described to Khan the other night when we were watching the, uh, the, the Czech game. He, he plays with mid-90s fullbacks where they don't really cross the halfway line um, and two holding players. And it basically, at times, looks a bit like a back six. But I mean, personally, I thought they were in complete control of the game against Croatia. I never felt at any point in that game that England were in any threat. I didn't feel like Croatia were ever going to score. I thought England controlled the game without creating a lot of chances themselves. Performance against Scotland was desperately disappointing. Um, Scotland were better. Not only were they better tactically, I think Scotland played the better football in the game. More enthusiasm. Frustrating. Yeah, played with more enthusiasm, played look more likely to score let's be frank about it you know the best save of the night was the was the one by Jordan Pickford so um you know that was a disappointing game I thought they played an interesting match the other night against against the Czechs because I thought England played much more fluid attacking football in the first half of that game than they have in either of the other two the slight caveat to that being there were a couple of moments the other night in that first half where I thought we were too open the other way, um, and, and a better team than the Czechs would have picked us off a couple of times in that first half. Gareth obviously had seen enough because at half time on came Jordan Henderson, up went the barricades, and England went back to defending with six players. And, and <laughs> really, you know, the Czechs didn't get over the halfway line for most of the second half, um, albeit it was one of the dullest halves of football that you could have, you could have seen in the tournament. So, I, I don't think at this point, having seen England set up the way they've set up for three games that it's a coincidence that they're playing sort of relatively negative, cautious football. I think that is how uh, Gareth Southgate thinks they're going to win this tournament. Um, and the question against Germany is, can they kind of bore Germany into a into a relative um, submission, if you like? Uh, and I think there are weak points, and we'll come on to those to discuss those. I think there are all weak points in, in the German system, and I think England can exploit them. Uh, and maybe Gareth Southgate's view is if we keep another clean sheet against Germany, 
he can't see a way that England won't score past them. And I think I'd agree with him on that. I think if England keep a clean sheet against Germany, they'll win the game. Germany were very close to going out. They were six minutes away from going out last night. There's definitely something to work with there for England. Uh, what, did, what did you think, Khan? A bit of an un- uninspiring but efficient campaign. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good <clears throat> excuse me, a good a good summary, Dan. And you know, it's something we talked about towards the end of, of the last podcast before the tournament around, you know, how how will England play and how much that matters. And I think Paul's right. I don't think it matters much to Gareth Southgate. It might I think it does matter to the 50, 50 million fans perhaps. But um and the, yeah, the Scotland game was definitely the disappointment because they were so bad in their first game they obviously raised it for that game but I think England didn't they weren't even really their equal on the night and I think that's the sort of disappointing one um but I think you know again you look at it on paper it's what seven points from a possible nine you know look like comfortable group winners what two scored zero conceded you know when people look back in 20 years they'd be like oh England had a good side but then they, they they romped through the group whereas obviously now we're like we, we just expect a bit more because of some of the talent that we that we have at our at our disposal which we saw a few glimpses of in that first half the other night uh, against the um, against the Czech Republic with um, obviously Saka and Grealish getting a run out and actually taking the chance with with both hands and really both impressing in their own way um so it'll be interesting to see how much of that is retained in the next game. But I think Paul's probably right that I think it will be a safety first approach. You know, the, the child locks will be on, the stabilizers will be drilled on. Um, there'll be no risk taken, I don't think, in that game against against Germany. So I don't I, I wouldn't be expecting a goal fest um, un, unless if, if Germany somehow do manage to get through our 25 man defence and score first and score early ish that may force us to come out and play a bit more, given that it's a knockout game as well. Um, but I'm not too sure if that'll happen, because as you've alluded to, um, you know, the, the Germans don't look brilliant so far, to say the least. Um, uh, and, you know, in England, at least even if it is more due to the way we play rather than the players as such, you know, we do look pretty assured at the back. Um, so it'll be an interesting game for sure. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really trying not to get too many expectations whipped up around it just because of the sort of history, you know, in those sides um, and, and the way results often go, um, particularly in tournaments. I'm <laughs> refusing to get too excited. But if, you know, if I was to try and be a neutral and objective about it, you know, you'd, you'd probably say England are, are the favourites. But as an England fan, it, you know, you can't really think that way because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, just, just one thing I wanted to pick up on, on, on Khan. Um, yeah, I, I agree that the Germans have actually looked pretty ropey for long stretches of this tournament. Um, the game against Portugal, when they turned it on, they absolutely blew Portugal away. But I don't think you'll catch England being as open as Portugal were. Well, Nelson Semedo doesn't play right back. Always <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 uh, oh, a weak spot to target. Well, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, the, the 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 game was almost like you know Portugal two, Nelson Tomato minus four. It, it, it almost <laughs> felt like that. Um, the Germans, don't get me wrong, they ruthlessly exploited it in a way that you would expect a German team to. Um, but they had targeted him. It was it was obvious even I think before Portugal scored the opener that that Germany were trying to play with with Gussens down that side of the of the pitch and. Uh, and cause problems for Semedo, particularly in 1v1 situations. 
I think that's one of the interesting questions for England looking at that Germany game is um, I, I imagine Semedo has to play. I don't think that the Man City guys available yet is he out of the out of the quarantine um i don't think so no process so i i, I presume it'd be Semedo again he is an experienced right back he's been at barcelona and you know obviously plays for wolves now in the premier league i, I think the interesting question for england is who do you play against him um they've generally gone with uh with sterling on the left hand side uh, and they played sterling left and saka right the other night if you were going to play those same two wingers and those uh, Southgate prefers Sterling on the left, and I think that is his better side. But if you were going to go with those same two players in wide areas against... Um, and we're not playing Portugal, are we? Why am I talking about England exploiting Portugal? Well, it might need to come at some point. Delete, delete, delete that bit, Dan. I, I got I got too obsessed with the fact that Nelson Tomato is rubbish. <laughs> I'm, now I'm not going to delete it because you just made a funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, look, I think um, I, I think against against... Portugal, Germany really exploited them down that left-hand side, and I think that was that, that was the way they created chances. Last night against Hungary, the Germans didn't have the same penetration down the sides. Hungary played uh, a much tighter um, system. They, they weren't as open as Portugal were. You would expect England will, will, as we've already discussed, be quite cautious and quite tight defensively. Um, the, the the problem for Germany, for me, defensively, is I think there's no mobility in those three centre-backs. When Rudiger is the most mobile of your three centre-halves, I think you've got a problem. His teeth are certainly mobile. <laughs> well, quite. Um, but, you know, uh, Matthias Ginter's getting on now. Obviously, Hummels is getting on. They're not the quickest. They don't, you know, when you're playing a back three, Generally, you want centre halves who are comfortable if they get dragged out into full back areas. Um, I don't think any of the German centre halves are comfortable if they get dragged out into full back areas. So, if I was England, I'd be looking to get balls into those into those channels and try and exploit them. Um, but you know, on the flip side, the Germans might be thinking, well, if there's a centre forward in the competition that you don't mind playing against, if your centre halves are immobile at the moment, it's Harry Kane because <laughs> um, he doesn't look particularly mobile either. I think um, what one one way I see England having a, a, a chance against Germany, and they do have one. It's not I, I don't have the same kind of dread about playing them as I did in two thousand and ten and nineteen ninety six. Um, there's. The legs you can run the legs off that German team, I think, and I think that's one of England's strengths. Yeah, they've got England. They've got a lot of energy. They've got a lot of youth, as we know, um, particularly in midfield. Uh, I think that's where the interesting selection call will come. Um, I think there'll be a large part of Gareth Southgate that really wants to pick Jordan Henderson for that game. Uh, I'm not sure it's a direction I would go. Not not to start. Um, but I think there'll be a, a big pull for Gareth to put Henderson with his experience and his leadership into that midfield. I think I'd focus more on trying to get my legs in into midfield. And if that means you let Phillips kind of off the leash a bit more as he played against Croatia, where he pressed much higher up the pitch. Um, or And I know I tried to get him in the team before the tournament, and so far Southgate's ignored me. But I do think there might be a case for Jude Bellingham, you know. Interesting. Uh, that that would be a, a brave call. Um, what 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 would you do, Cam? Would you try and run the legs off off the Germans? I I, I do think you know I've 
I'm really trying to to, to look at this uh, objectively because I actually do have a lot of sort of positivity that I'm trying to block out of my brain for this match um, because I do I do think on on paper I think we 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 have a better side and certainly uh, greater depth uh, than this Germany side. So I think there's a lot of reasons why actually. Um, you know, there's various different combinations England can go with, as Paul's alluded to some of those options. And I think either way, I think we'd still technically be putting out a stronger team in in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's just whether we can sort of get over the, the you know, the sort of the mental block that comes up sometimes when England play, you know, big teams and, you know, especially Germany and in major tournaments. I think that's maybe more the more the concern. Um I, I don't know whether you know. I I like the bits I've seen of, of of Bellingham. I'm not sure Southgate would be quite that that bold. In all honesty, um, I mean it would be interesting given he obviously plays, you know, he plays over there as well. Um, whether that might be a bit of an advantage, I don't know. Um, he's certainly got the legs because he's a, he's a young lad. But um, yeah, I'd be probably surprised. I I think he probably will go with with Henderson if he's if he's fit. You know, if he's happy with what he saw of him in the last game and he's he's sort of you know fitness passed and ready to go, then I think he's one of his first choice. And I think he will go with him uh, probably for that. Just experience, you know, you know, we know what Southgate likes, experience, reliability, dependability. These are the qualities that, that Southgate likes in his players. And to be fair, that is pretty much, they are the words he'd use to describe Jordan Henderson. Um, so I, I imagine he'll be, he'll be starting in there. Um, the, the question is then how does he sort of, you know, then, then more at the top of the field, how does he mix it yeah. up? I mean, you know, we've got obviously Kane will start. We know that. Um, but he has looked, you know, well off the pace um, for whatever Manchester City shaped reasons might be occupying his mind. We don't know. <laughs> um, we'll wait and see. We can only speculate. So then the, the big, but then it means actually, if you're almost taking Kane out of the equation a little bit, then the, the, the two alongside him actually become really important. Um, and, and, you know, as Paul's meant, you know, Sterling, to be fair to him, he's not everyone's cup of tea, but he's come up with the goods when he's needed because we've only scored two goals and he scored both of them. Yeah. So so you think, well, he has to start and then it's who yeah, goes for Sterling that. Sterling has that. to start. Yeah. So he's that, the only that. goal threat at the moment. Yeah, 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 doesn't well, look well, like exactly. scoring. Yeah. So then it's that it's that coveted sort of third spot then of who who sort of takes that and you know there's a list as long as your arm of, of people will be vying for that role. I, I I'd love to see Saka play again. I, I thought he was absolutely I thought he was brilliant against the Czechs. I know I know they're not a great team, um, but I really like the energy he brought um, into the side. I'd I'd really like to see him get another run out. To be honest with you, um, I'd, I'd I'd be surprised if he started Graylish again. I felt like that was a bit of fan service and with the fact that Mount wasn't available, it was like all right. Fine. <laughs> All right, England fans, I'll give you an hour of Jack Graylish. And he did okay, you know, he set up the goal, right? So, you know, it was, it was a good performance from him. Um, I, I, I think I'd rather have him as an option to maybe come on and mix it up if, you know, maybe on the hour mark, um, depending on how the game's going. But I'd, I'd, be, I'd be looking at maybe maybe going with Saka again. Um, don't, know what, don't know what you think, Paul. Is. I know you're a Saka fan, obviously. Yeah, I, I mean, I also thought he was brilliant the other night. I think the thing that he does that um, I, I'm not sure some of the other England players realise is allowed, but when you receive the ball with your back to the opposition goal, <laughs> you are allowed to turn round <laughs> and run that way. You don't have to just pass it back towards your own goal because that's the way you're facing. Um, a, a lesson for Declan Rice, maybe. Um, but uh, <laughs> but Saka just, t- you know, the, the goal came from a move, move in England's own half where Saka receives it on the half turn, spins his guy and suddenly makes 50 yards up the field carrying the ball. Uh, OK, he overhit his cross, but England recycled it and, and Graylish put a good ball in. And, and then even, even on the ball in, Saka hasn't stood admiring the play. 
Saka's got himself into the box and it only just goes over his head and, and you know, makes it to Sterling who, who heads it in. I, I think he gave England a dynamism in the first half the other night. Um, I, I think the, I would be tempted to start the same two wingers, even though we're not playing Portugal and we're not playing against Nelson Semedo. I would be tempted <laughs> to start the same two wingers. Now, probably on that basis, leave them on the same side as they played the other night. Um I think there is a question about what he does at number 10. I think if Mason Mount is able to take part in in any sort of meaningful preparation for this game, Gareth Southgate will pick Mason Mount. If he isn't, I think it becomes a really interesting question. And if he and coming back to Khan's point about who plays in the two and, and Southgate maybe not going for Bellingham in a two, would he go for Bellingham in a more of a 4-3-3 shape? If if Mount isn't available because he, he isn't you know cleared from the quarantine until the day before the game, um, it would there be a temptation from from Gareth Southgate's perspective to leave Graylish out, not play with a number ten and play more of a four three three with Henderson. I mean maybe Henderson, Phillips, and Rice that would be unimaginative. But but with with Rice, one of Henderson or Phillips, and and then. Jude Bellingham. Um, he brought Bellingham on, didn't he, the other night for for Grealish, and went to more of a um, more of a four three three shape from the middle of that second half without a number ten. And I wonder if he might be inclined to do that if Mason Mount's not available. I'd like to see him play Jack Grealish. If, while frankly, whether Mount's available or not, I think I wasn't one of these fans who was saying you've got to get Grealish in the team. He's got to be in the team. He's got to be in the team. Um, I understood why he started the tournament with Mason Mount. Mason Mount's, you know, just played an incredible end of the season for the team that's won the European Champions League. So I think it's understandable why Southgate wanted to get him in the team. Um, but Graylish got his opportunity against Germany, uh, against um, the Czechs. He played well. And I think it would be a message to Germany that we are not scared of you. We're going to start Jack Grealish, who's a bit of a maverick, who maybe isn't always the hardest worker, isn't always the best presser, um, but who can make something different happen on the football. I think psychologically, the message it will be sending to Germany is, we are ready to beat you in this game. I think what Gareth will be hoping for is that wherever Mason Mount is currently residing gets added to the green list later on this week. (laughs) Well, I I think... um, yeah, I think technically Mount is available to join training again a week after the, the isolation. So he isolated from Monday morning or middle of the training session, I think, on Monday. So technically he's available again from the middle of Monday. But, you know, Southgate is, if nothing else, a meticulous planner. And I think the idea of not being able to work properly on his team shape and his system with the 11 that he wants to start the game until, you know, the last 24 hours of the preparation, that doesn't seem very Gareth Southgate to me. And so while I'm sure he'd love to play Mason Mount from the start, um, I'm dubious about whether he will, given given that. I, I, I agree with you on that. If we kind see, of... Sorry, can't go on. I was just going to say, see, I think as long as Mason Mount still has both legs intact, <laughs> that area... I, I think he'll be. I personally think he'll be. I, I take your point about the planning and stuff, and I know it's not ideal, but 
I wouldn't say it about probably almost any other player, but just because it is Mount, I think I, I think he'll play. And, and well, it's almost certain they prefer a one-legged Mason Mount over a two-legged Jack Grealish. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> indeed. And and I, mean, I think just one more point, Dan, before we move off the sort of England lineup for um for next week. Uh, I might be the only person in the country who thinks this, but I think they need to get Kieran Trippier in the team. And I, again. I'm not conventional on this because most people on Twitter hate the idea that you might play a right footer at left back. My personal view is if you're going to play with your fullbacks held in, I think Kieran Trippi is a better defender than Luke Shaw. Um, and he's definitely a better set piece taker than Luke Shaw. Uh, I could see an argument for starting Trippi right back and, and Shaw left back. But Gareth's worried about the lack of pace at centre half. So he likes the pace that Kyle Walker gives him on the cover. Um, I think get Trippier in the team. We haven't been great from set plays in this tournament yet. We know that three years ago in the World Cup, it was a major weapon for England. If this Germany, if if Gareth is going to try and play this Germany game tight and make it a real sort of, you know, tense, uh, closed affair and try and try and nick a goal somewhere, then I think you've got to have your best set piece taker in the team. And, and Kieran Trippier is still, by a distance, I think, our best set-piece taker. Interesting. Um, he certainly did. I thought he did quite well in the game he played at left-back against Croatia. Didn't think there was a, a slight, an issue in the slightest with how we played. So, interesting. If we, as you just alluded to, Paul, kind of look, look at um, the, the other um, surprises and and high spots of the tournament. Um, I think if, if we quickly look at um, the biggest disappointments, I think you would have to say d- they may not have had as big expectations as everyone else had of them, but that was a pretty bad tournament for Turkey. <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose I should weigh in on this. But yeah, I mean, I'd, I'll keep it brief, but it, it was incredibly disappointing. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly what sort of happened really between qualifying and, and, and the tournament, because the reason they were talked up is, is the, you know, and we talked about it on the last podcast that they qualified well, you know, they, they took points off big teams. They had the, the I think the joint best defensive record. Um, and so therefore the expectations came and they've, they've had some individual players who've come off the back of good seasons as well. So you think sort of form and confidence is there. So everything on paper <laughs> looks, looked, looked set for them to, you know, at least get out the group. And then, you know, depending on where you fall after that, you know, obviously you're in the sort of lap of the gods, but you know, to, to, to not even give it a go. I mean, you know, to just, I mean, they just scored a, a goal right towards the end of the last game, didn't they? Um, you know, they were almost in danger of not even scoring a goal in the tournament, which is something that you normally only like the real tournament minnows do. I mean, I think North Macedonia scored two, didn't they? So, you know, they've scored less, scored fewer than them. Uh, so, yeah, re- re- really bad tournaments. Um, you know, maybe uh, maybe bringing back, um, you know, Senol Gunesh, I think it is, who's a manager who was the, you know, oversaw their, their 2002 campaign, maybe bringing him back overall, maybe not not the smartest move. I don't know. I don't know if he's still in a job, but I, you'd think they're probably going to look to try and try someone else and maybe, you know, re-qualify for the next World Cup and and have another go. Um, so I think there there is some talent in that team. It just, yeah, it didn't didn't happen at all in this tournament. So yeah, really, really disappointing. I think um, what, one of the teams that have, have caught my eye 
the the most were, were teams we kind of played down before the tournament. Uh, I'm not saying that Holland, sorry, Netherlands will go on to win it, but they've looked good, and I've been impressed with Italy as well. I I think Italy have been the best team in the tournament, Dan, so, through well, the yeah. group stage. I think they've been the most consistent. There are other teams who've shown sort of highs and lows, flashes here and flashes there, um, you know, good halves or games, but then followed by ropey performances. I actually think Italy have looked very, very convincing in all three games, even when they rotated a few players against Wales the other night. I, I mean, credit Wales because they hung on grimly to that 1-0 defeat. And, and, and I don't mean that as a sort of, you know, Mickey take. Nope, that was the right yep. thing to do once they were down to 10 men. It was to batten down the hatches. If Gareth Bale could kick it straight, then he, they might even have nicked a draw out of it. But <laughs> overall, I thought Italy were a class above um, in that game. They They... Mullered Turkey in the second half of that opening game, didn't they? It was an absolute murdering uh, after half time. Um, and they beat the Swiss very convincingly. And one thing we know about the Swiss is they're normally as, as tough as old boots, aren't they? And never get an easy game against them, even if you beat them. And I thought Italy wiped the floor with them, frankly. So they've now got a, a, what you'd say is a favourable draw. In the uh, in the next round, they uh, I think they play at Wembley, don't they? They play Austria. Yeah. Um, that's a nice draw. Uh, if you're if you're Italy, you would expect them to win that. Then the winners of, of Belgium and Portugal um, probably wait for them in the quarter final. That that will obviously be a good game. Whichever one of those gets through, a Belgium or a Portugal playing against Italy in it in a quarter final, that's a, a game to look forward to. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think I, I did. I did wonder if Italy might be a little bit of a, a, a dark horse because no one was really talking about them before the tournament. But they've um, there's some good depth in that side as well. It's not like it's just and they look like a proper team. Like it's not just yeah. a couple of individuals. And they've got some good young players coming through. Some good attacking players as well. It's not the traditional you know sort of eight men behind the ball sort of Italy side. They're actually uh, they're coming out and playing. Um, and, you know, they were the best team in that group and they've won it comfortably, fair play, but they've done it in some style um, as well. They've really laid a marker down and you'd have to say, based on performances in the group stage, I think they've, they've definitely been um, the, the best so far. I know a couple of other teams have, have, have finished with full points, but I think Italy have looked the, the more robust and the most assured of, of all of them. Whereas I think Belgium and Holland have looked great, but it's been a bit bang and bust. Um, whereas, yeah, Italy have, uh, you know, have not looked in any trouble uh, at all, really. And yeah, I, I love you're right. Oh, go on, I love go on, bang or bust. That's a great, that's a great phrase. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why. I think it's supposed to be boom and bust. But anyway, well, so. I'll, I'll, no, I'll take the bang and bust. Bang, um, bang and Ray, Ray Winston definitely will. Yeah, I think. I think the point on on Italy that you make on that's absolutely spot on. They have got a way of playing. They start with a back four. They start with a kind of four three three, and when they get the ball, the left back goes and plays right up the pitch. As, as, as almost a left winger, Insignia comes in off that flank and sort of floats into a number 10 position and they all just shuffle across one at the back and they they go from a, a sort of 4-3-3 to a 3-5-2 in almost the blink of an eye um, and it makes them a really, really dangerous team to play against. They've got a definite system that Mancini has clearly worked on since he's been in that job and they all understand their roles. Um, and they look very, very well drilled. And I agree with the squad depth. I think what Italy lack is that one superstar who might be able to make the difference in the in the big moments. And I think that's the question when they play some of those better teams. And and you know there isn't 
the same sort of talent differential as there was in the group stage? Do they have that person, you know, Belgium have got De Bruyne and they've got Hazard and Portugal have still got Ronaldo and they've got Bruno Fernandes. Um, and, and you look at, you know, obviously the French with Mbappe and Griezmann and, and even Germany and England have, have got players in there. You think they, they might be able to do that, that thing that's a bit different that makes, makes the, the breakthrough in a big game. That's the one thing with Italy that as you look forward in the tournament would worry me. Um, on Belgium and the Netherlands, I mean, I said neither of them have got a chance of winning the tournament. Uh, I, st- I still think that particularly with the Netherlands. They've been great fun, but my God, they haven't got a system at all. The system, like, there isn't even, the system there isn't is even get- a noticeable formation when they play. So, sorry, Paul. Yeah, the, the, the system is get the ball to Memphis Depay or in, in front of Memphis Depay to run on to. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, we know his record in the Premier League as a manager was pretty awful. Um we have to give the ball credit because, again, it's not been a great period in, in recent years for the Netherlands and, and for them to top their group, good. It's a good start. They played that great game, didn't they, against Ukraine in the first weekend, which I think was, was the one that really kicked the tournament into life a little bit. Um, so so they, they've been fun to watch. They just haven't been... Um, they haven't looked to me like a side that's got the structure that you need if you're going to go and win it. I think you're very right there, Paul. You just mentioned something that we've not really touched on. You know, the, the, the tournament came back to life after because uh, we, we were all still a bit shook up about Christian Eriksen the day before, uh, and and that that game uh, Holland against the Ukraine was was a bit of fun. Yeah, it was, and it, it kind of rejuvenated the tournament. Um, you just mentioned the team that I'd like to talk about, uh, North Macedonia. Yes, they've gone home. Um, with nothing, but um, I think they deserve all the credit in the world. They play good attacking football. They were good to watch, and they look like they belong to me. Yes, also runs. Yes, not even got a chance of getting through the group stages realistically. But what what fun they were! And you know, it's a rainy day in Maypole when I stick up for the underdogs. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it was important for UEFA that North Macedonia didn't look miles out of their depth because just to remind listeners that North Macedonia benefited from the Nations League, right? They The reason they qualified is that UEFA have created this system in the Nations League that guarantees in every European Championships one of the minnows is going to qualify um, because the teams in that bottom pot in the Nations League format still have, via the Nation League playoff, a route into a European Championship. So North Macedonia exploited that route. They were the one that, that, that won the Minnows um, playoff, if you like. Uh, and it was really important for UEFA that it wasn't an embarrassment. If they'd been absolutely mullered four and five and six nils in their games, um, there'd have been some egg on, on the faces of the UEFA top brass. So they will be relieved that North Macedonia came and gave a decent show of themselves. Um, you know, didn't didn't embarrass themselves um, and give it a good go. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the team who embarrassed themselves most was Slovakia yesterday. Mm-hmm. I, I Martin Dubravka definitely. Yeah, did. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if he just felt sorry for the fact that Spain had had 112 shots without scoring a goal previous <laughs> to that. Uh, but but Slovakia were determined to make sure that Spain's goal difference got a boost last night. Um, and I think that group in particular was tough to watch. Spain passed it a million times 
you know, quite often without going anywhere. Uh, and even if they do go somewhere, the strikers never shoot on target. Um, Poland were dire again. You feel for Lewandowski because he actually, this time round, you know, he did his bit. He, he got, I think, three goals over the three games. Um, but they were awful. Uh, Slovakia, you know, played a decent game against Poland, I thought, first up. Um, even 11 v 11, I thought they were the better team in that game. Yeah, they were. Uh, but but really, from there on in, just capitulated. And Sweden did what Sweden do. They turned up and they, um, you know, played four four two. And they uh, didn't get a penalty spot. And yeah, they don't really overcommit. And and in the young kid, he sack up front. They've got someone who looks like a, a talent. So um, Sweden won't be an easy game for anybody uh, in the knockouts. But but you would always think when they come up against, I would expect Sweden to probably knock Ukraine out. Uh, I think they'll just be too organised and too resolute. But then England or Germany in the quarterfinal, you would think either of those two teams, very much as England did in Russia, would have too much for Sweden. Yeah, almost certainly. I feel, I feel like you're teeing us up now, Paul, to go into the who do we think is going to get where <laughs> section by starting to reference the later rounds. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's a, a, fair, a fair summary. I think... Um, you know, Spain, Spain are a weird side at the moment, aren't they? It's like it's almost like they know they're treading water between generations of like <laughs> the young players aren't quite established enough yet. And the older players are either knackered or most of the, the really good ones have, have left. I think is it is it Busquets who's about the only one still there. Um, obviously, others are retired. So it's they're, they're a strange bunch. I can't say as I really have many memories of them in this tournament. Um, that really stand out, to be honest. Um, that game, in a way, that game against Croatia that they're playing could be an interesting one. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't specifically bet on Spain to win that. You'd think they probably will have too much for them because um, Croatia are, are, are not particularly great. But then they do have, they have got Modric, you know, um, and a couple of other handy players there. So that that could be a could be an interesting one. You know, if if they go through, if Croatia went through and played France, you know, that would be a replay of the, uh, you know, the oh, yeah. final a couple of years ago. Mm. So that's possible to happen. I think Croatia would have been, as we'd done this podcast a couple of days ago, my my sort of pick for the really the most disappointing team. I thought, well, I say, I thought England handled them pretty easily, to be honest, to the point where I almost felt like second half England were in second gear once they scored um, and could have upped it at any point. Uh, and then I didn't think Croatia were particularly impressive when they when they played the Czechs on on Friday night, um, but. Obviously, they dismantled Scotland in the second half the other day. Um, questions about how good Scotland really are and how ready Scotland really were for this tournament. But um, from what I see in the highlights and, and here, the second half was one-way traffic and Modric's goal was just sublime world. Yeah, that was incredible. I'm just looking through. We haven't... Yeah, we... we we haven't well we haven't covered Wales Denmark is the other one. Um I mean you know of the uh, of this round I, I mean again it's it's a difficult one to call a bit a bit I think a bit like the Croatia Spain one it's it's a real tricky one it, it, I think that genuinely could go either way. Um you know Gareth Bale learns how to to run or shoot again. Um then you know they've got to check because again it's you know like you were saying Paul about teams that have that star quality you know yeah um, and not all of them do but wales you know yeah wales aren't obviously a big country and they perhaps don't have one of the, the stronger teams or, or squads but they, they do they do have one or two players in there who yeah. 
if they turn up, if it's the right day and if they fancy it, which if you think realistically Wales in a, a Euros uh, knockout game, if you don't fancy it, then you're never going to. Um, you know, that could that could make the difference on the night. The fourth. Yeah, I think you know, the, that game that they won, the critical game that they won, the, the second game of the group, um, the the thing for Wales was the the connection between Bale and Ramsey. Um, and the goal that Ramsey scored, which is terrific pass by Bale, a typical Aaron Ramsey run, perfectly timed, good control, good finish. Um, and that put them in control of that game then and, and, and was the catalyst for them qualifying. So Wales definitely do have in those two, two people who can make a difference in tight games. And you question maybe with without Ericsson for, for obvious reasons, whether Denmark have that player who can who can do that. Um, Denmark are a very good, solid team. I think I said before the tournament, I, I fancied them to, to make a run maybe to the quarterfinals or even to the semifinals because the draw was always that bit that might open up for them if they finish second in that group. Um, it, it won't be an easy game for Wales, but I, I think the difference makers do just tilt me a little bit in their direction now. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. I mean, I, I was sort of viewing the game even without that lens of what happened to, you know, to Christian Eriksen. So it's 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 difficult to know how much that's still sort of playing on the the squad's mind and kind of you know potentially impacting their performances. We'll we'll never necessarily know fully. But um, yeah, again, I, I think it's very very open open tie. And you know, let's face it, for for Wales to be in a a, a knockout round is is great, but also it's a pretty kind draw for them in that sense as well it's like if ever they were going to have a crack you know they must be looking at that time they must fancy it surely um you know even even if it is partly because of the really tragic circumstances that have affected denmark you know they must be looking at that game and thinking we've got a really good chance of getting to a court final here yeah, um, I, one, one thing I wanted to, to say is, um, and, and not obviously not for me to speak for the Denmark squad, I, I get the impression that the force is with them a little bit at the moment. Um, the, the, after the, the, the first game against Belgium, after, after the Ericsson problem, they played really well, and unfortunately for them, uh, Belgium are just a, a better team with better options to bring off the bench. Um, they absolutely pulverised Russia in, in a, one of the best games of the tournament, I thought. Um, and uh, I just get the feeling that the, the force is with them a bit. And I have a, a friend who's Welsh, and he was like, that's a buzzsaw, that's the game that I didn't want. <laughs> were, were Russia yeah. in the tournament, Dan? <laughs> Allegedly, yeah. Um, did, did anyone tell them? <laughs> well, yeah. what, what was it? Three nil. They won one nil and got beat four one. So, yeah, uh, you, you could argue not, but I'm glad they were because it's always funny to see them get battered. To, to be honest, <laughs> yeah. I, but I think it's a good point you make though about that. Denmark are firmly in that everyone's second favourite team spot now, aren't they? I think because of what's happened. So yeah, whether that whether that might be sort of on their side as they progress. Yeah, I don't know. But uh yeah, I think definitely be a be a really interesting game that one. Definitely keen to keen to watch it. If we then if if I ask you for your final final four, then your your semi finalists, I do have the calendar in front of me if you need it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm gonna i I'm gonna say I'll go first. I am I'm a brave man, Khan. I'll I'll go first. Go I am gonna say that the final four will be Mm, Germany, Holland, 
Belgium and France. Fair enough. Oh, shall I go next then? Um, I will go. I'm going to read it from the from the other side of the chart I'm looking at. So I'm going to say Italy uh, in the semi-final. So for them to to beat Austria and and you know either of Belgium or, or Portugal who's put in front of them. So I'll say Italy from that side, France from the other. So Italy France in that semi-final, um, and then I'll say. Germany, Netherlands, um, not necessarily the semi-final I want to happen. And of course, I hope it isn't that. But just based on following football for 30 years, <laughs> I would say Germany, Germany Netherlands um, in the other semi-final. Yeah, I'm, I think... So I think I agree with Khan in, the, in what I call the top half of the draw. I have Italy and France playing an absolute classic of a semi-final on that side of the draw. On the other side of the draw, I'm going to go at this point for England-Netherlands. But I think if Denmark get past Wales, Denmark will make the semi-final. That's completely fair. That, that is completely possible, I would say. I think Denmark are the kind of team who will really give the Netherlands a problem because they're very structured and organised, which is completely the opposite to the Netherlands. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I, I think Wales is almost a harder game for Denmark. I think Denmark will be tactically superior to the Netherlands if they if they face them in a quarterfinal. Um, so maybe, maybe I'm going to take a risk then. I'm going to say Italy and France... England and Denmark in the uh, European Championship semi-finals of 2020 in 2021. Yeah, fair. no, that's fair enough. I mean, I'd, I'd take that for sure. Um, I think I, I've basically gone with my top four Premier League prediction that paid off when we were just just pick the four biggest teams <laughs> and let football do the rest. <laughs> so. But I know I like I like your thinking, and I and I hope I, hope I imagine how mad this country would be if England were playing a semi final at, Lon- at Wembley in London against Denmark uh, for a chance yeah. to play a final at Wembley in London against either France <laughs> or Italy. Uh, yeah, the yeah. place would be absolutely off the hook. <laughs> well, I, I I can remember the uh, as I'm sure you both can the. The, the semi-final in the Euro 96 and the, the buzz, the country was united. It, it feels like the last time the country was united, to be perfectly honest. Really <laughs> I, I, I do think, Danny, it's an interesting point you make because the thing I remember that night is the flags before the game, like the 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 waving of the England flags before kickoff in that, in that semi-final against Germany. And I, I think it, it shouldn't go without mentioning there will be 45,000 fans at Wembley on Tuesday night. And that starts to feel like a proper, you know, it's been great to have the, the 15,000s and the 20,000s. And I'm not taking anything away from that. It's great to have fans back in football stadiums full stop. 45,000 in Wembley on, on Tuesday night will, will make a difference. And, and the games you've seen that Hungary have played, particularly at home, where they've had those full attendances. I know Wembley are still only be half full with 45,000, but it's enough to make a proper atmosphere in there. Um, and fingers crossed that plays to England's benefit. Yeah, agreed. Um, should be a very interesting knockout first, which gets underway on Saturday. Um, we're, we're pretty much done with the Euros now, but we would be remiss to not mention some of the... Uh, the, the capers going on in the Premier League at the moment. I'd just like to exclusively reveal on this podcast that I actually turned down the Tottenham job 
Um, no, not you as well. <laughs> me as well, yeah. What what are they doing, Spurs? They sacked Mourinho in March. It's now June, and they're on the 15th choice target. Not a smart move. Well, I think uh, unless we've missed it, I don't think they've been turned down by anybody today. So that's <laughs> that's probably a win for uh, for Daniel Levy. Nobody's rejected the Spurs job in 24 hours. Um <laughs> Obviously, the news broke yesterday that the Sevilla manager is, is, was at least contacted and, and didn't have an interest. Uh, they've made a real mess of this search. Um, it sounds as though with Fonseca, he was ready to accept the job and it was Tottenham who, who decided to break off negotiations and and start chasing Gattuso. And then that fell down and Fonseca quite rightly said to him, you must be joking if you think I'm coming back now. On your bike. Uh you know, the the search has been haphazard at best. And what tells you it's been haphazard, Dan, is that obviously the, the talk was at the start that Nagelsmann and, and the, the guy at Ajax, whose name escapes me, Ten, Ten Hag, is that how you say it? Ten Hag. Ten Hag. Um, Ten Hag. Uh, it, it, they were the two candidate, um, you know, identified candidates. Neither of those was going to be available to them. Brennan Rodgers was mooted. It was pretty clear that early on that he had no interest. Um, then there was a strange dalliance with bringing Pochettino back, which I don't put all at Spurs' door. I think I think there was genuine interest on Pochettino's side. Um, and obviously PSG shut that down pretty quickly. Uh, and then from that point on, it's just been... Because Conte wasn't available when they sacked Mourinho and no one could have known Conte was going to be available at that point. So they didn't sack Jose Mourinho and think Antonio Conte would be really good. They came to that because they started at that point saying, well, who's available? And Antonio Conte is a successful established manager. He's won the Premier League and he was available. Um, That broke down over personal terms and transfer budgets if we're um, a lack of ambition, if we're led to believe what Conte's side put out there. Spurs basically said to him, you don't have to win anything. And he said, well, why am I coming then? Thanks very much, but I'll go somewhere else. Um, and then the Fonseca thing seemed to be about to happen, fell through. The Gattuso thing was a bit of a, a bit of a joke, frankly. And then the, the pursuit of the severe manager that's also ended in, in something of failure. Um, I mean, they need to make a decision. I increasingly feel like they'll end up with either Eddie Howe or, or Graham Potter uh, because they can't let this drag on many more weeks. Yeah, it's very, very bizarre um, situation. Paul I think it's a good, good summary. I've not not followed it; it's killed hugely closely. But um, the bits that I've sort of dipped into, I mean, it is farcical for a, for a you know a club but you know let's face it one of the the bigger clubs in 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 the premier league uh, one of the wealthier clubs um you know to to, to and, and and particularly with you know we keep hearing about how much of a a canny operator daniel levy is i mean this is setting back his reputation a bit because he he looks a bit of a fool now um from the way that this is this has gone on i mean the, there was the curious timing of the sacking of Mourinho, right wasn't it because it was literally the day after the super league stuff broke and everyone thought, oh, is it linked or whatever? And it didn't really seem to be. Um, but there was it was a bizarre, like, not sure exactly why they picked that particular time, whether they thought almost they could just sort of brush it under the carpet because there was so much other news going on. I'm not sure. But then, and it was, yeah. the, sorry to interrupt, Colin, it no, was the week on. they were due to play the, the League Cup final as well. 
Yeah. They sacked yeah, him at the start of the week that they played the League Cup final the following Sunday. It was very odd timing. Yeah, yeah. So whether that yeah whether there'd been a a, a robust discussion that, that sparked it or whatever you know I, I don't know but um, yeah so maybe maybe they didn't plan to make the decision that quickly and something sparked it and that's why maybe they didn't have as much of a of a plan but let's face it his job wasn't rock solid leading up to it anyway so you think surely they were monitoring the situation so even if something happened that made them get rid of him a month or two earlier than they were planning if they were maybe thinking oh we'll get it through to the end of the season you'd think they should at least have uh, have had something resembling a plan it's 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 uh very remiss of a club that size you know all clubs do it they all have dedicated teams of people monitoring uh you know the movements of people um around you know sort of not just players but managers as well and coaching staff um for, for these sorts of eventualities so it, it does kind of expose i think some some failings on 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 Spurs's end in terms of just uh, you know general best practice, if you like, and it, yeah, it's it certainly doesn't make uh, you know Levy really come out of it with with any credit at all, um, and it does make you wonder. Obviously, whoever comes in now, I mean, they will appoint someone, probably one of the two guys you mentioned. They know they're about twenty fifth choice. It's going to be an underwhelming choice for the fans. So you think, well, actually, how long are they going to last in the job before they need to replace them? I mean, it is it really sets them up for a, a pretty messy short-term future, I would have thought, because... Uh, and then you've got all the issues then with the playing staff that need to be addressed, right? It's it's not a rosy picture on that front either. Um, you know, you've got two really good players and one of them almost certainly seems to want to leave now. <laughs> so it's like, how would you deal with that situation as well? And is, is a Graham Potter really the person to come in and start sorting out Harry Kane? I mean... Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, you must be loving it, Paul. You know, <laughs> Quite frankly, uh, well, uh, I mean, the Harry Kane point, the, complete. the Harry Kane point is a good one because if you're trying to persuade him to stay at the moment, this is not the way to go about it, is it? Um, you know, at the point that England get knocked out of the Euros, and it could happen as soon as next Tuesday night. Harry Kane's full attention is going to be on trying to sort his future out, and if at that point Spurs still haven't decided who the manager is, I mean. How realistically are they going to convince him to carry on? Uh, yeah, not a great situation for Tottenham at all. Another club that are making a, a right mess of their managerial situation is Everton. Now, you've got to kind of differentiate them from Spurs because their manager left not long after the season had finished and that no one saw that coming. No, nobody expected Carlo Ancelotti to go and take the Real Madrid job. Um, so... I've got some sympathy with them on that, but they've gone from Eddie Howe to Nuno, back to Eddie Howe, and now um, for the last week it's been Rafa Benitez who's going to sign, and he's not. And my, my obviously I have a, a few uh, a few Evertonian contacts, and from what I understand, Everton want to appoint him, but are too scared of the fans to do so. And they're mulling it over. Rafa's not in a rush. Rafa's just managing some no marks in China. You know, it's it's fine from his point of view. But I, I get the feeling that they're going to back out of it. Well, I mean, it'd be a silly decision, I think, if Everton back out of Rafa Benitez because they're worried about family action from the fact that he used to manage Liverpool. I think he is as good a managerial candidate as Everton are likely to find at this stage. Um, he wants, you know, we've known for a long time that Rafa wants to be living in, in Merseyside. He's got a nice life there. He's got a nice house there. Um, he was commuting from there when he was the Newcastle manager. Hmm. Um, you, you know, that is where Rafa, I think, feels most comfortable. 
Um, he's an experienced manager in the Premier League. I just I think there's a lot of reasons why that would work. I think the other thing that might be a reservation for Everton fans is Rafa's teams have never been particularly full of flair. Expansive. And I, yeah, well, certainly they haven't got close to expansive. Um, they make Gareth Southgate look expansive. <laughs> but they, you know, Rafa's teams are not known for being flair teams. They're well-organised, they're well-structured. They're very good on, on counter-attacks or transitions, as we call them now, because um, apparently counter-attacks just doesn't describe it anymore. Um, you know, I, they've got all those qualities, uh, but they aren't necessarily the qualities Everton fans tend to see in a manager. Uh, you know, they still think of themselves as um, as a sort of real footballing team. I mean, they haven't been that many times in my football-watching lifetime, frankly. They had that one season when Martinez first got there where I thought they, were, they played some really good football. But generally, Everton's best periods in my lifetime has been when they've been well-organised and well-structured and hard to break down. So Under David Moyes. Yeah, particularly under Moyes. Um, so... I I think Rafa Benitez would be a really good appointment for, for Everton and I think they'd be silly to pass him up if he if he wants to take the job. Just before you come in, Khan, I think that the problem, Paul, I, I don't know if you, if you remember, it's barely a footnote for anyone else, but after a, a nil-nil game at Anfield, I think it was 2006, um, Everton were 6th or 7th, came to Anfield, defended well, got a nil-nil that they deserved and Rafa was in his press conference was reaching for a word he called them a small team he called them a small team and to this day you'd have to ask Rafa if that's what he meant I don't think he meant to to refer to them as a small team I think what he meant was a lesser team a team that is not as good as us was what he was reaching for I believe English is obviously not his first language and he went for small and I don't think he could have foreseen statements and um, such a, a big reaction. I, I don't think that was his intention whatsoever. So, um, I mean, I'm open to get an Evertonian on if he's appointed just to, 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 to hear their thoughts. But uh, my advice to them would be get over it. That's a European Cup winning manager, a U- Europa League winning Cup manager. Yeah, he's a, he's a good he's a good coach, and um, and I think he'd, he'd be a sensible choice, especially because I, we've had this discussion about Everton a number of times. I don't know what they're trying to be. Rafa will bring some direction because he's that kind of personality, he's that kind of character. Now, he will also bring some friction because he's that kind of personality <laughs> and he's that kind of character. But Rafa will have a very clear idea in his head about how he intends to set that team up and what he wants them to look like and how he wants them to play. Um, and then uh, and then he'll moan until he gets the players bought the fittest system, um, which is which is the way Rafa works. And then get sacked, and then, then then get sacked, threatening to join another team. Yeah, so you know, I think um, I think he'd be a good appointment. And then, uh, oh, do you think now, Dan, from the the stories earlier that Crystal Palace have solved their their managerial vacancy? Uh, from from what from what's been reported, Lucien Favre is is hot favourite for that job. Um, the, the, the new nothing falling through for Palace was very strange. I, I think that's a bit of a strange mo- manoeuvre from Nuno anyway, but um, b- basically he wanted too many backroom staff and Palace said no. But yeah, a bit so, of a strange so, so my understanding was he tried to play him off against Everton when there was a bit of Everton interest and then came back with some pretty unreasonable demands and Palace said, we've got no reason to accept this, go away. On your bike. Yeah. Sorry, Cam, do jump in. 
<laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, I think just on the on the Palace one, yeah, I'd heard, heard a similar thing that uh, in the end it was them them that sort of pulled the plug on Nuno, which you know it's one of them in another life that could have been a good appointment for them. I, mean, I think he is a decent manager, and you know probably would have done a good job for them. Um, I don't know too much about the, the fellow you've mentioned who's coming in, um, and 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 then on Everton, I mean. I, yeah, it's it's a weird one. Benitez going there um, for for all the reasons you've said, but equally at, at the moment, it's 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 not a bad appointment for for lots of reasons. I think the the one really would be above the Liverpool connection would be the, perhaps the the style of play because you know to be fair to Everton, they do generally try and go for managers that do have a slightly more um, you know sort of passing attacking game rather than the sort of perhaps pragmatism that that Benitez. Um, you know, tends to enforce. So I, I can understand, you know, there's there's probably two reasons there that fans could be a bit disgruntled. But, you know, as we keep coming back to, it's like, you know, I mean, they did they did very well getting a, a manager of Angelotti's level in the first place, attracting him to the club. Um, so maybe it is perhaps a little bit of a reality check for a club that's perhaps drifting a little bit and in, in need of an identity, you know, maybe getting someone in like Rafa, even if it is just for a couple of years, perhaps wouldn't 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 be such a bad thing for them. I think on the, I mean, I don't know a huge amount about uh, Lucien. How do I say it? Favre? Is that the right I be, pronunciation? I, be, I believe it's Favre. Favre. Lucien Favre. I, I don't know the greatest amount about him. Obviously, he's, he's been the Dortmund manager, hasn't he, for a couple of years. Um, I think he left last year, but had a couple of years as the Dortmund manager. Um, I think his teams are generally sort of counter-attacking, but fast counter-attacking. Um, sort of, you know, dynamic on the counter-attack, uh, which might be a fit for Palace. That's generally the way they've played under under Roy Hodgson. He's vastly experienced. I think he's, again, he's not in the not in the early years of his managerial career, let's say that much. So, um, to an extent, he reminds me a little bit of, of the guy he's replacing um, or, or seems to be lined up to replace. Uh, but again... We talk about risks. We talk about the risks they took when they hired Frank de Boer. The one thing he hasn't done, um, despite all his experiences, ever managed in the Premier League. And until you've been here and you've had a go at it, there's no telling whether you can do it or not. I think one thing I can say for certain is that he will last longer than Frank de Boer. Well, he'd do well to to go quicker than de Boer. He was, you know, blinking you miss him. <laughs> uh, well, one last thing. Um, looks like... According to this podcast's favourite publication, The Athletic, um, it looks like Ben White's going to Arsenal for between 45 and 50 million. I think he's a really good player, Paul. I think that's very expensive. It is very expensive, Dan. I agree. I like Ben White. I think he's a good player. Um, He definitely fits the Arteta style because I think he can play out, um, which is something clearly Arteta's been looking for. There's two things for me. One, just the price on the face of the price is is expensive. Um, I think Arsenal's first bid that was turned down was £40 And to me, that felt like the absolute top of where I'd be willing to go. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that centre-half is Arsenal's number one priority, if I'm honest. We had the third best defensive record in the league last year. I know when people think Arsenal because of years of, of problems, they think, oh, dodgy at the back. Actually, last year, the problem was we, we didn't create or score enough goals. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised that if we've got 50 million knocking about, the first priority is another centre-half, um, particularly when we've got William Saliba, who we paid you know, nearly 30 million for a couple of summers ago, who's not played a single competitive game. 
it now looks like the plan with him is to bring him back and loan him out again, possibly within the Premier League this time. Um, but I think my view, and I think the view of a lot of Arsenal fans I speak to is, before we go and spend £50 million on another young centre-back, shouldn't we have at least had a look at what we've got in the one that's there? Now, if Ben White comes in and spends, I think he's just turned 23, isn't he? If he comes in and spends 10 years as a centre-half for Arsenal, £50 million will look a snip. But um, at the moment, to me, it feels it feels a lot of money in an area where I'm not sure I think it's the big priority for Arsenal. The middle of midfield desperately needs tackling. It looks like we're also pretty close to the, the kid from Andelect, uh, the Belgian guy who I know almost nothing about. Um I think he's only 21, so clearly he's he's a player looking at the future. I think it's right that Arsenal this summer are profiling players at that age group, you know, the 21 to 25 group, rather than signing more Williams and David Luizes. But um, it seems a lot of money to me uh, for, for Ben White. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I think what you touched on there about the 10 years thing, it's like you're you're taking a punt on him making it, aren't you? And and, and sort of developing and becoming a, a regular for, you know, certainly five years plus um, and sort of holding his own as a, uh, you know, first choice centre-half for a sort of big-name Premier League club for that sort of money. So, um, yeah, wait and see if it if it pays off. Um, I mean, is it is it definitely happening? I mean, I know <laughs> far be it from us to, to, to question the Athletic on this podcast, but I haven't <laughs> followed the... I tend to try and avoid all transfer news like the, the plague anyway these days, to be honest with you, because 99.9% of it's rubbish. But well, uh, is, is, Jim this, White is this meant to be... <laughs> Jim, White's, Jim White's stepped down, so... Yeah. It, um, David Ornstein says they're close to a deal, and he's generally right. as reliable as it comes it's on there, Arsenal. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so Jim White will be somewhere else having every agent in Europe on his mobile phone. So that's so that's a oh, one, Paul. Forty-five million and five mil, mil of add-ons is is what Ornstein right. is saying. So that's uh, so that's forty-five million in what Graham Potter's piggy bank if he stays, or a potential new yeah. manager if Potter gets the Spurs job. Then um, think yeah. as as well, Khan. Um, all three of our teams have been linked with. Eves Bissouma, so that that um that those coffers might swell even further later in the summer, because it, it, unusually I I remember many a Euro camp being disrupted by player X going to sign for club Y, that's really not happening. The, the, I mean it, it's helped by COVID, you know, like you 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 you're in a bubble, everyone else got to stay out of it, but there's not been much transfer movement yet, has there? No, it's been quiet and um and. I think you might be right about... I also think just the fact that they're all spread around the continent, Dan, and not in a kind of single place that it's easy mm-hmm. to just fly in and fly out on might, might be might be part of it. One, um, one, one I, thing I did think was interesting, though, was and we mentioned this the other night, Paul, was how in the list of uh, allegedly, you know, the, the City players that they've put forward as make-weights for Kane is was Sterling, who were obviously there <laughs> literally playing with each other. So that, that could potentially have caused a bit of awkwardness. Um you know, between them as uh, one being the make weight for the other's transfer, perhaps. But I mean, how how much truth there is to that, I have no idea. But uh, that's one example where two players definitely are fairly close together because they're playing for the same side. But uh, yeah, but yeah I think. Um, but yeah, but no, there hasn't been um, as as much, and I think it's partly because the yeah, obviously clubs are probably being a bit more careful with their money as well, um, given it's been a you know a rough a rough year or two years, whatever it is now. 
um, which probably may be also waiting to waiting for the tournament to include. I suspect we might see a bit of a flurry, you know, once between the tournament ending, um, you know, the attention shifts to the Olympics, um, and then sort of, you know, maybe that's when the, the sort of business will, will get done, uh, perhaps during in, in that in that sort of end of the end of the summer window. I just think on, on Eve Basuma, Dan. I think I think the risk teams who want Eve Basuma run is um, is that risk where Brighton have done their their sale. If Brighton sell Ben White to Arsenal and get forty five million, fifty million in the in the coffers, you know, Brighton have got no incentive at that point to sell somebody else on the cheap. And, yeah. and I think it's. It becomes then a point of, you know, someone's going to have to really overpay. If you remember, it always takes me back to the summer when Monaco had their fire sale. If you remember, after they made the Champions League semi final, when they knocked Man City out and they won the French title. And then they had their fire sale that summer, and Mbappe went and um, the left back went to City, and Bakayoko went to Chelsea. And Arsenal wanted Thomas Lamar all summer. And we ended up waiting to the last minute, at which point Monaco were like, well, we, we don't need to sell anybody else. We've, you know, we've brought 300 million in this summer. And they're not and poor anywhere. Us, yeah, and you're offering us 55 million for Thomas Lamar. Give us 90 and you can have him. Uh, and luckily, we ran out of time to do the deal before the window, but at, at one point we were contemplating it. And I think there is that risk with teams, both with Basuma and with the, the right back as well at Brighton. Um, now I know he's injured at the moment, so maybe that's putting clubs off making moves this summer anyway for him. But uh, that is a risk you run. I think when you you end up with a club like Brighton that's that's well run, that doesn't pay stupid wages and stupid transfer fees themselves. Once they've made one big sale for fifty million quid, the incentive for them to go and do another one um, becomes reduced and. Uh, that might be something something worth watching. It's a similar similar thing at Norwich, actually. I think um, you know Norwich have obviously sold Wendia for good money to to Villa. I think anyone wanting Todd Cantwell or Max Ahrens now is going to have to pay a super premium um, because they don't need to sell again. Yeah, it's very true. And of course, um, you might not have got the 2018 Thomas Lamar, but you, you did get the 2019 Nicola Pepe instead. We did, bless him. He's on holiday in Miami. I've seen his Instagram. He's having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that, I think we'll do uh, another another podcast. Um, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Big Football Podcast via iTunes, Spotify, uh, Podbean, and Amazon Music. Uh, I do think this might be our last show of the summer, but we'll have to see. Who knows what football is going to throw up, but um, hopefully an enjoyable last 16 because there have been some really good group games. I'm, I'm hoping we can see some attacking football, but knockout football tends to be a little bit more cautious. It's coming home, Dan. <laughs> I admire your optimism. Right. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Paul, Khan, thank you very much for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>